and welcome to The Long Short, a new podcast brought to you by AIMA, the Alternative Investment Management Association, focusing on the very latest insights on hedge funds and private credit. My name is Tom Keogh. AIMA is the global representative of the alternative investment industry with around 2,000 corporate members spread across 60 countries. Of these, our fund manager members account for approximately $2.5 trillion in hedge fund and private credit assets. Each weekly episode of The Long Short will examine topical areas of interest from across the alternative investment universe, news, views, and analysis delivered by AIMA's global team, as well as a host of industry experts. So whether you're a hedge fund or a private credit industry veteran, a student of the industry, or just someone interested in learning more about hedge funds and private credit, this podcast will be your ideal companion to help navigate you through the long and short of this fascinating industry. You're very welcome back to The Long Short. The need for what's now known as cyber resiliency was thrown into sharp relief in 2020, when much of the world was forced to work remotely in a fully digital environment for the first time. Two years on, what was initially predicted to be a short stint working at home has radically changed working practices, as many of us have shifted to a more permanent arrangement regarding hybrid working. And this in turn has ramped up the need for a more sophisticated conversation about the risks and challenges that come with the new digital tools we've adopted to maintaining business operations. For the alternative investment industry, AIMA has produced a series of resources to help members navigate these issues. And we are joined today by someone who's been at the forefront of helping fund managers in this regard. George Ralph is Global Managing Director and Chief Risk Officer at RFA, which is a financial cloud and cybersecurity services provider to the investment management sector. George, welcome to The Long Shore. Thank you for having me. So let's go back to 2020 when everyone was first sent home and had to figure out what a Zoom was. The COVID pandemic didn't start the trend of embracing digitization, but it certainly accelerated it. So how challenging was that period for the average fund manager to pivot to maintaining BAU processes in a digital environment essentially overnight? It's it's a great question and it's one that keeps coming up, I think, because uh, technology, you know, very similar to running a business, you you learn your greatest valuable asset in terms of strategy from the lessons you've learned the hard way. Um, And I think the key thing for the average fund manager, if we ignore RFA clients and think about the sector as a whole, is that firms who had very traditional technology, maybe they've not moved into public cloud yet. You know, they're using systems like Citrix, um, where you've got server resources, licensing to think about. A lot of those tools were considered just simply for business continuity purposes. So say, for example, you have a firm with 100 users, it may be that as part of their business continuity strategy, they have 20 licenses for Citrix because there's never an assumption that everyone's going to need to be on the system at the same time. And so a lot of firms that were not prepared for that or cut costs around licensing then had to suddenly scale up licensing, scale up server resources so that everyone could be on the system at the same time. That that was a lot of um, firms' challenges that had been well established and had technology that hadn't quite evolved properly i think the challenge we had across our client base because we have been promoting public cloud since 2014 now um it was all about logistics and it was about projects that we could remain delivering um and projects had to be on hold so what i mean by that is if you've got a really good 
flexible working model from an infrastructure perspective if you've got a sort of a mobile first strategy with things like SharePoint and Exchange Online and you don't have a big server infrastructure. When someone has to suddenly move from an office to satellite offices, I'm going to call it, rather than home working, you suddenly need to work out how, how do we get their monitors to their house? Or do we just buy a new set of monitors? Do we want computer screens with arms? Do we want one big screen? Do I need an ergonomic office chair or am I going to have problems in six months time of that? And then you had this challenge where people didn't want to do all the purchasing because they assumed it was only going to be for a couple of months. So a lot of it was around logistics rather than the technology. And then it kind of evolved into uh, more of the governance and policy and risk side. So there were queries about you know, how are we securing people's home networks? It's not actually an office location. We can't dictate to them. Um, we, we, for example, set up uh, like a COVID-specific website which had tips and tricks and, you know, advice on changing Wi-Fi passwords so more secure and that kind of thing. Um, but from a compliance and risk perspective, it, it was more around, you know, what are we going to do about printing? We, we can't just have people printing documents out in their house because there's no way of tracking it. How, how do we know what's been printed? Where's it gone? Why, why did they print it? Um, and so it became more about queries around that in terms of risk and, and sort of the practical side. But I think the main thing in terms of BAU was the logistics challenge for people. And George, um, just thinking about this this period from the onset of the pandemic we're looking back to, early 2020, right to the height of the pandemic period. You've mentioned some of these issues, but were there any common issues? Because you've got a variety of clients, large and small. But were there any common issues then that, you know, you're having to come back time and time again, working with your clients to resolve? You've talked about the risk side of it, and that has obviously become uh, a lot more important, particularly when people working in a hybrid setting. But give us a sense of the, the nature of the work you were doing with your clients, you know, at the peak of the pandemic and how, you know, you're looking to do that now today as well. I think if I, if I could hone in on a particular problem that we had that wasn't necessarily a repeat issue, um, was very much about legacy systems. So, and this is a general technology problem. So when people develop their own platforms, generally they're not they're not a SaaS platform they're generally something that's running on a development environment you know you've got a test server you've got production servers um it's how people access those remained a problem and it still does now because people are working from home and it, and it's how do they access that securely and generally with legacy systems you're limited to how you can connect people to that so a lot of what we've been doing with our development team is to try and take people's legacy systems and turn them into SaaS uh, products just because it's more secure and you can containerize the access to a browser for example the other thing that's slightly related to that but not and i have to be careful how i uh, phrase this is that there's certain products out there that are licensed by the actual physical device um, and for that, you have to be at the physical device, which may be in their office. So a lot of people were then needing systems to connect to the computer back in their office to access the system, because if they didn't, they'd have to buy a, a copy of that system and have it in their house, which then doubles the price of the licensing. 
So people were asking us to come up with weird and wonderful solutions to access these platforms because they didn't want to double their licensing cost and commit to a year of the licensing cost when they thought, again, they might only be doing it for two months. Um, and so we've been talking with the manufacturers of some of these licensing software products to try and help them come up with a sort of a BCP licensing model. Maybe you can pay for the license based on what's on at the time rather than the physical device numbers. Um, those, those are the main things from a technology perspective. I think the other thing that remains a challenge, and I don't think this is specific to our sector or even technology, is sort of project um, project challenges, right? So one of our clients, for example, and they, they were very clever in the way they did this. We, we always do fixed fee projects for our clients because we want to show them that it's a shared risk. You know, we know how long it should take to do a project. They don't necessarily know how long. So it's fixed fee, shared risk commercially, that, that kind of thing. And we had one client who, who needed to do a desktop refresh for 120 people. And we planned it for the end of March, right, just as COVID hit. And our plan was to do like a coffee shop engagement to do the refresh of this equipment. So they were moving from desktops and Lenovo laptops to Microsoft Surface Pros. Um, so we had all these Surface Pros pre-configured for the staff. We were going to have lunchtime sessions where people would come in, 20 people at a time, 10 to 20 people. And we had sort of sandwiches and coffees and things. And then we would show them how to use the Surface Pros, put their profiles on the new one. And then the old ones would go to recycling and they would go away with the new Pros, right? And it's a great way of teaching them the new device. You're not having to go around to other people's desks and disrupt the business. Obviously, when it's COVID, so all of a sudden we had people in Madrid, California, like all over the world. But we still needed to roll these machines out because they've been purchased and it was a fixed fee project. So the client had a timeline. We had a timeline. So in the end, what we had to do is sort of collate all of the engineers at RFA who had motorbikes, basically, and then try and get groups of people together out and around. Obviously, it took longer to deliver, but. It was a bit of a logistical challenge. And I think things like that still are, are a challenge for people. Um, you know, we host, uh, and this is a re result of COVID, we host startup hedge funds in our office here in Barclay Square. I've got seven clients who have offices here because they don't need to commit to a long-term contract. They want flexibility. So we're trying to encourage people to come to us more rather than this sort of branch effect of having to go around to everyone. And I think everyone has that challenge. I think we certainly want to, to focus on uh, one of the things I'm most keen to hear from you is sort of how, how we've evolved to where we are now as opposed to uh, where we've come from. But but just before we, we get there, the other thing I, I wanted to, to bring up was that we, we heard so much at the time around uh, this big uptick in, in cyber criminals trying to take advantage of uh, the the period of flux that we we're in as everyone was adjusting to home working, maybe not as secure as they were, at least initially. And we heard a lot of stories around phishing scams and, and all these things going out and trying to, to you know, get data or, or, uh, or, or you know, or extort money from businesses. And I, I don't know about you, but I was always querying this because, you know, for example, I got one the other day that was saying, um, you know, someone has been authorised to have £100,000 invested 
and they're looking for investors and they found my LinkedIn and they think that I would be great. And if I could just give them my bank details, they'll send me 25 grand and I can start investing. Obviously, pretty laughable attempt at it. Um, They haven't got back to me since I I sent them across. I assume that's coming. But I don't understand. Are we now beyond the stage of people getting scammed out this stuff? Are these phishing scams a real threat? And, And maybe if we were still susceptible to them back in 2020, have we as a, as a sort of business or an industry, sorry, been on a real crash course there? That's a good question, actually. I, I think there's a couple of things we should talk about in this perspective, right? As a technology firm who's looking after a very specialist niche sort of sector, it's easier for us in a way because we get a lot of feedback from the clients. We can we can help other clients learn from lessons from other clients. You know, it means I'm not going to an insurance company in the morning and talking about their management database and then going to a hedge fund and then going to a charity. You know, it's, it's easier for us in a way because we can really hone in. But this is one topic which affects everyone. You know, as you say, it affects you guys at AMA, it affects me at RFA, it affects my mum who's a teacher. Obviously, she teaches IT. That's uh, all we talk about at home. Um, but you have to remember that cybersecurity uh, and what it was in 1994 when I was specialising in information assurance, which is exactly the same thing, it's all event-driven and they play on people's emotions and the fact that we as a sector are in a rush, right? So most people, when they are caught out, it's because they're in a rush and it's email. It's another form of electronic communication. You know, we've got WhatsApp, we've got Telegram, we've got Slack, we've got Teams, we've got email, we've got phone calls, although people don't tend to pick the phone up anymore. But there's so many forms of communication, it means it's more of a risk that someone's going to make a mistake. And what happened with COVID is is obviously we are communicating even more electric, electronically, right? And we'll talk about video type conferencing in a minute but it means the amount of emails that people are getting just shot through the roof you can't just turn around to the person next to you and go oh hey bob come and have a look at my screen what do you think i should do with this an email goes out oh i've got this they do a screenshot another email check so the volume of email went up which meant more people were at risk of making a mistake i think that's one point to note the other is that we're in a very emotional place you know, for me personally uh, and my executive team, my business partners, we the motivational factor of, of having 400 staff across 11 locations, some of which were suddenly found themselves in a studio apartment with a desk and a bed. And that's where they lived for a year. You know, emotions for our staff, emotions for our clients, not knowing how long they're going to be working from home, when they're going to come back, the whole, you know, the whole thing with COVID, it means that people are, again, very distracted. So their awareness level goes down again. The other thing is, it was incredibly public. Every single hacker and chancer in technology to try and make some money around the world knew that in every single business across the world, there was disruption with technology. They knew that people were working at home remotely connecting. It was a perfect opportunity. So it wasn't necessarily a technology result or anything like that. It was emotions. It was a change that's very public. 
And most most hacks that are phishing, in fact, pretty much all of them, they're just chances. They're never really targeted. So what I've been trying to do is as much awareness as possible. You know, we we do e-learning for all of our clients every quarter. We try and do it when new people join the business because a lot of them come from outside the sector. So that example you gave, Drew, you know, if someone's new to the sector and they've come in as an intern into a hedge fund, they might not know that that's a phishing email. They might think, oh, this is part of the process. Maybe they're not the right intern if they think that. But you, you see what I mean. Um, and what I was trying to do during COVID was actually do more video training with people. So I'd get everyone from the business on a call for an hour. I would do a PowerPoint presentation not quite death by PowerPoint because I had some jokes in there, tried to make it more engaging. Uh, and I did videos, people, you know, what is phishing? What is smishing? What does malware mean? What's ransomware? How do you spot a, a malicious domain? All of this kind of stuff to try and train my clients, but then also allow them as a firm to give examples of what they've seen so that they're teaching each other with experience. And we just try to do that as much as possible. It's all about awareness um in this world well you if a new one on me george what is smishing i've not heard of that before pardon my ignorance but what is smishing it's basically text message sms right yeah and 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 that is one thing that's really become to the forefront because of covid because we're getting messages from the nhs yeah from companies who did our tests you know and, and they were using that a lot to catch people out It's very helpful, very, very insightful, George. If I can go back just to 2020 again and, and the move uh, to remote working, which was really done to solve the immediate problem where we all had to uh, work uh, from home. Um, but now most of us are embedding some form of hybrid working into our work process. And, and no doubt there has been a learning curve then, I'm thinking about for our industry regarding what particular fund managers are doing or, or don't need to be aware of when operating their business remotely. So what are the tools then that fund managers are using the most today um, and what should they be considering to use to help them stay as competitive as possible when it comes to the internal collaboration or managing the middle and back office processes? I think the key word here is collaboration and process, right? Um a lot of what we're trying to do, and I'm kind of starting at the end of the topic here and then working backwards, I think it's easier, but we're trying to help people automate the operational processes more. So a lot of people traditionally would get in a meeting room for 10 minutes and go, right, are you going to do this task? I'll do this task. How do we get the process done? Let's just get it done. Okay, it's finished. Now you can't, you don't have that ability as much. And so getting the processes right in advance about the deal flow, for example, and then automating some of those is going to help the businesses move faster forward without the need for so much collaboration because, as we know, human error is, is the cause of a lot of uh, challenges in, in funds. The other thing is is using initiatives and technology to make people feel like they're still in the same room because I think what people forget is we may be in a position where we say to people, you have to come to the office three days a week. But if the two particular people who are doing something are not in the office on the same day of those three days, you still have exactly the same problem. So we've got um, like chat rooms that we have with clients where every single person has uh, a Teams uh, video on. It's on the whole day. 
So it's like the old um, turret systems where you could do single click to your trading colleague who's in New York and you're in London and it immediately opens. It, it's about having that open all the time so that they can see what each other are doing, but not from a supervisory perspective, but just to allow that flow of conversation to keep stuff going. And, and we do a lot of that with clients. So that's really helped. I think the other thing is, you know, there are challenges regulatory from you have to supervise traders. So a lot of traders were having to come into the office during COVID anyway. And so having these live video feeds means that you can kind of get around that too. Um, and then I think the other thing is, is really trying to make use of the tools that are off the shelf available to people. So things like, you know, Microsoft Power Automate, um, and Microsoft Flow, which is which is an automation tool that allows us to help automate products, but from a graphical perspective. So we teach clients how to use that themselves. Um, using things like Teams, but using SharePoint in the back end for file collaboration. So everyone's working on the same spreadsheet at the same time. They can chat at the same time. You know, and then that chat channel leads into project management tools like Planner. So making use of the tools that people are already paying for, because most people have exchanged online with Office 365 or or they use G Suite, which has a similar set of tools. Um, and so, again, I think it's it's very, very much about education and, and showing people what they have, making use of the technology, but without you know, disrupting the users by suddenly rolling out new products um, because of a business change and just doing things gradually and encourage encouraging user adoption by showing them the advantage, basically. Uh, and many businesses have also moved to the cloud. Um, so how has um, the move then to using cloud technology more changed cybersecurity protocols for alternative investment firms? This is a, this is a huge area. And it's very much about personal opinion. You know, uh, I, I remember back in the day with public cloud, I, I was explaining to people when they said, which is more secure, RFA's cloud or, or public cloud? And I was saying, well, generally speaking across the whole world, I think everyone's heard of Microsoft, but not everyone's heard of RFA. So on that basis, RFA might be more secure, but then RFA don't invest, you know, billions every year in uh, cybersecurity tools for Azure. So there was always that kind of swings and roundabouts conversation. But I think if you think about technology um, and how you secure it, it's, it's, it's back to a knowledge, really, of the configurer of the server infrastructure. You know, uh, I think it was the Capital One breach uh, happened because an IT guy spun up an Azure server, but he hadn't done any of the security configuration. So it sort of opened a door. Um, and that, so I think... Utilizing the tools in the cloud obviously are going to give you those feature sets like I just talked about as an example from Office 365. But it's about the configuration. It's about locking that down. We, we try and treat the cloud and infrastructure and endpoint security as one single uh, piece of the puzzle. So we secure it as if you're putting a cloud around the cloud, basically. Um, and that tends to work better from a cybersecurity perspective because you don't have lots of entry points. You're locking everything up as one. I hope I've explained that right. Um, and then you're looking at things where there's this sort of collaboration of files and data where, you know, a lot of people used to have FTP servers to transfer spreadsheets and things between them and the fund administrator. 
in fact i think a lot of them still do um but now you can utilize things like sharepoint to share files securely you can set expiry dates on it you know uh, recipient lists if i sent you guys a a spreadsheet to give you a reference of what we've talked about today afterwards for example i could say only only the people on this call can read it if you want to share it with someone else i then have to give further permission so there, there's there's better uses of it that allow people to do things more securely but they have to know how to do that um and that's what i was saying about education you know one of the firms that we started working with during covid they had a very traditional technology model before we got engaged uh now they're fully public cloud they use things like teams and sharepoint and stuff before they had an email server and a file server and a vpn and what happened is one of the new investment professionals came in and his job was to invest in technology so he was very clued up on tech uh and he sort of implemented shadow it without knowing it so a new technology solution that the it firm weren't aware of he basically set up office 365 and rolled out teams and sharepoint to all the staff uh the it firm didn't know this um for whatever reasons probably because they weren't able to go to their office or i i don't i don't know what the reasons were um but then he didn't realize that if you create a sharepoint site it creates a teams channel so he'd created an hr site he'd created a marketing site he created a client site which was the right thing to do but then he didn't lock down any of the teams components so staff could see every single Teams channel so they can chat. So they're thinking, oh, I'll go to the HR chat because I want to find out what our compensation plan is going to be in April. Or... And then they realized, oh, there's a files tab in the HR chat. So they go to files. All of a sudden, they can see all of the payroll information, all of the CVs, a massive breach. Uh, and this firm just uh, spoke to their prime broker, I think, and they said, oh, you should talk to George because they've been rolling teams out for the last four years or whatever, and we can lock it down. So then I immediately did a piece about locking down teams configuration and put it on our COVID uh, portal for clients and things like that to make sure that no other firms were impacted by it. But it, that's the risk of, of public cloud. It's, it's fantastic, and it can give you so much collaboration and tool sets. But if it's not configured properly... That, that's that's the main risk. EMA are delighted to host our annual conference dedicated to ESG this September the 8th in London. The full day program will address the basics of ESG integration, the latest development in investor demands, new trends and themes, and the regulatory updates the firms need to know about. This is a prime opportunity to network at the industry and to hear unparalleled insights from speakers about how to approach responsible investment techniques across a range of strategies. To register or to find out more, visit the AMA website. We hope to see you there. Maybe, maybe this is a good time, a good segue for, for this then, because underpinning all of this, and we've alluded to it several times, is a greater reliance on service providers. Uh, obviously, uh, many, many hedge funds, especially the smaller ones, do not have large IT teams on hand who can, as you say, spin up servers. And, and uh, you know, when, when COVID did hit and, and, and now, uh, all this tech stuff does come from, from service providers. And I think AMA has been observing for some time now in our own research that 
whereas uh, maybe a lot of fund managers were quite hesitant or, or suspicious of service providers, especially around certain core processes in the past, that perception is changing. And, and now even people are talking about outsourcing trading and outsourcing all sorts of things that before were maybe sacrosanct. But, but just to really put that um, in context and, and not maybe overblow what is maybe an emerging trend. Can, can you just help us understand how far that's come in terms of a, a greater uh, openness to using service providers and, and whether there's any trends in terms of just the smaller funds, just the larger funds, or maybe a bit of both? Yes, good question. So the, the, the I think the point now is that it's not, you know, should we outsource uh, or not? It's more as you rightly say, what what components should we outsource? What do we feel comfortable outsourcing and to who? I think a lot of that comes down to due diligence and experience of the people launching the fund. It it tends to be the trend that, you know, if you're launching a hedge fund, you know, you need to focus on getting your AUM up, performing the two are combined, right? You don't want to be spending £250,000 a year on a CTO to configure Office 365 uh, and support your users because that person's going to be incredibly bored. Uh, they're also going to never sleep because they're going to get phone calls all the time saying my monitor's not working or I can't work out how to do this uh, macro in the spreadsheet or it's just not it's just not a way to do it anymore. I think in the past... Uh, and obviously, I'm following, I'm focusing on IT here for outsourcing. But you would have server infrastructure. You'd need firewalls. You'd need switches. It needed someone there to maintain the system. It's just not needed anymore. And I think, in general, as long as people are focusing on good due diligence on their vendors and they're doing it regularly, there has to be an element of trust there. I think for me, one of the value items that i see from outsourcing is i mean it's huge and wide i talked about this in a uh, event in new york a couple of weeks ago but it it's the kind of education and knowledge component so if someone comes to me and says oh we're launching a a, a longshore equity fund very vanilla uh there's going to be 12 of us you know i think i've done 32 launches this year just in london I can say to them, don't bother looking for an office. You don't need it at the beginning. You know, you need a fund administrator, you need an auditor, you need a strategy, you need you need a fund structure, you need a lawyer, you know, all, all of these kind of components. I can't say to them, oh, I'm going to give you an amazing automation platform and a snowflake data warehouse and all of this kind of, they just don't need it. But they might not know that. And obviously, marketing impacts every sector. Um, and for me, it's about saying, look, I've got two clients that I launched six months ago that are doing exactly the same thing as you. Why don't I introduce you? We can either go to the pub and have a quick beer and I can introduce you if you don't want to do it electronically or we do a phone call and just helping people learn from each other and experiences. Um, and the other thing with outsourcing is obviously purchasing power. If I'm buying Global Relay or Mimecast licensing, I'm doing it for like 80,000 people. They're doing it for five. I, I'm going to get a much better price for them. So there's there's loads and loads of benefits. And I think now more than ever, 
and this is going back to the bigger firms and what they sort of outsource, a lot of people don't want the headache of HR and managing people and mentoring them when they never see them. It's, it's difficult to do. And, and the trend I'm seeing are on outsourcing for us, which is a challenge for us as well and everyone else in the world, is they just can't recruit people. And, you know, they might have furloughed their IT staff during COVID and now they need them back because everyone's coming back to the office and they can't they can't get any because the IT people want to work remotely. And so we are we have sort of augmenting IT teams around the world at the moment for our biggest uh, firms, you know, like top 10 PE clients or top 20 hedge funds that have got a lot of people. We're actually seconding our staff um, so that we're doing the mentoring, we're doing the training we can provide cover for sickness or, or holiday rather than them doing it. And, and the trend I can see is, is, is they're going to just keep it like that. Originally, it was a temporary thing while they tried to recruit and then bring in uh, people. But they've started to realize, actually, this is a much better way of doing it. We should have just done this before. We don't have to worry about any benefits packages. We don't have to worry about holiday because RFA will send someone else who's got knowledge. You know, we don't have to worry about mentoring and hr components and so uh, that's a trend for us with our bigger clients massively um and so outsourcing i think it's definitely grown uh because of covid and uh i think it's helped people streamline their operations more and just focus on the job and, and learn from the experience of their partners and and obviously the other side of this conversation is that you know when as with all things with technology when it works it's great and easy but there is also a huge question around compliance and uh you know regulators and policymakers were also scrambling to get their heads around this new way of working and and actually i was in researching for this episode i was, I was reminded of a, a piece that you did for the aim journal where you highlighted a report that came out from the World Economic Forum uh, called uh, Global Cybersecurity Outlook, and the thing that came out at the start of the year. And I just wanted to, to ask you whether you think that gives some indication that regulators and policymakers and, and other stakeholders are abreast of the new risks that are you know that we've discussed so far, and you know whether they will be leading in. Uh, this sort of new cyber resilience revolution and um i know this is a huge question but but should we expect a lot of regulation in this regard to come in the near to medium term short answer is yes i, I can tell you one of my concerns at the moment is uh cyber attacks for for thing you know things like crypto dusting which is when people put a small amount in lots of people's wallets no one notices and then it's gone you know crypto funds aren't regulated yet so I can't really answer that question, but it's a concern of mine at the moment. I'm trying to help all our crypto clients get educated on that. Um, I think they are. I think they are abreast of it generally. You know, in the UK, for example, it helps because we've got things like the NCSC, which is the National Cybersecurity uh, Firm, that works for the government to educate us. There's lots of portals and things that have free guidance. I think that helps businesses in general. Um, things like Cybersecurity Plus, where you, you, you pay a couple of hundred pounds, someone comes in and tells you what firewall you should have and, and does a sort of an audit and things like that. But I think if you think about recent cases with the FCA, 
in 2017, I think they did something called the FP 16 slash five or something. I'm going geeky now, but it was about outsourcing to and third party uh, relationships, which everyone assumed was cloud. Um, and it talks about doing proper vendor due diligence. It talks about doing regular uh, security testing, pen tests. But importantly, it talks about risk management processes and making sure that you've got you know, a good risk management process in place so that the people at the board level are aware of risks uh, and can make informed decisions. And they updated that last year to sort of remind everyone, do good due diligence. It's important. Um, and a lot of people don't necessarily realize that all of your vendors are connected to the fund. You're communicating with them. If they get breached, you get breached. I mean, it's all, it's a trickle effect. And I think the recent changes that the SEC have introduced, which is about policies and, um, you know, IRPs or incident response planning and things, for them, they're, they're more dictatory in the way that they uh, I don't even know if that's a word in the way that they approach it to people to give proper guidance whereas the FCA is more sort of guidance and you can interpret and I like what the SEC have done because they've said look these things do happen but you need to let us know so that we can help the sector and also just have a plan you know they've kind of gone down the route of you know, I, I, I race caterums and everyone always says it's not if you have a crash, it's when and how bad. A bit like most cyclists, I think. And I think SEC has gone down that approach. They're like, it's not if, it's when. Uh, so just make sure you've got a plan. Make sure that you can recover from it quickly. You know, we, we've got a lot of tools we're rolling out, which is about um, sort of public opinion of companies, uh, perception monitoring, um, that kind of thing, so that, you can see like a score comparing you to other funds to see how good you look from a PR perspective. Um, and you know immediately if someone has a data breach uh, and they notify a regulator, someone else is going to find out about it. It's going to be in the news. Your your public or reputation score is going to go, you know, completely down. You're probably going to have a bit of drawdown. But if you can evidence that you dealt with it really quickly, you learn from it, you're less likely to have a, have a breach again. You know, so you want to make sure that if you do, and I hope anyone listening to this never, never has it, obviously, but if you do, it's very small. You containerize it quickly. You know, you learn from it. You notify the right people. You move on. If you don't have a plan, it's very likely that that very small one is going to get very big, very quick. And George, um, in that recent piece that you wrote in the AMA Journal, uh, you concluded with the following um paragraph and if i may quote you you say as the world looks ahead to the rest of 2022 and beyond it is essential that business globally see cybersecurity as a strategic business issue that drives and influences decision making so it is no longer a question of how firms are protected in terms of cybersecurity but rather how well they are protected with a key focus on sophistication effectiveness and fortitude so from your perch then at RFA and soliciting with the fund management industry, what is your sense as to how sophisticated firms are now in safeguarding themselves against the threat of cyber and related attacks? I think from a technology perspective, generally 
firms are well protected in terms of sophistication on the tech side. I think they have a lot of options. I think people should always be pragmatic about it. Um, I remember speaking to a startup the other day who had an office and they were like, do we really need two firewalls? And do we need this and do we do that? And I said, well, not really, because you guys hardly ever go to the office. So when you do, turn the firewall off and when you leave, turn it off. You know, turn it on when you're there, turn it off when you leave, because if you're not connected, you, you can't be breached. So it has to be pragmatic. But I think from a technology perspective, the sector's good. You know, we've talked about cybersecurity a lot because we're trying to get good awareness and educate. You know, I know AIMA do a lot around cybersecurity. I try and give my experience as much as possible to help the sector. But it has to be pragmatic. And, and as I said, I think the technology side of it is, is very, very good. I think the awareness of the risks of cyber and what people do to mitigate could be improved as a sector. You know, a lot of firms I, I, I sort of take on as a business, they don't necessarily have a risk matrix for cyber, for example. They don't know, you know, who's who's doing integrity checks on the backups. You know, is it read once, write many? How is it configured? Who's responsible at our IT service provider for checking? Who in our firm and fund on a director level is responsible for checking that they're checking? You know, having a risk matrix is very easy to put together literally get the IT firm to list out all the risks, put a scoring in about likelihood versus impact, make someone responsible for managing that risk. And then the board can actually make a decision, an informed decision to say, at the moment, this is our highest priority risk. So we should probably spend some money on resolving that or increase the mitigation actions we're doing, right? I think that's really important. And that's kind of what I meant about having more awareness from a business perspective. And if you explain that risk to a board member, they will go, ah, okay, I understand that now. And that's what we're doing to mitigate it. And actually, that's how it would impact the deal flow process. So that's pretty important. Maybe we should focus on on removing that risk or, or, or reducing the impact of it by doing these mitigating actions or et cetera, et cetera. So when I sit on risk committee meetings with my clients and I've got about 22 globally where I'm actually chairing those meetings at the moment. It's really, uh, it's really important that they've got visibility and awareness of what's going on. They have to make the decision. I can't, I can't really, I can steer them in a direction that I think is right for them, but they should make the decision because if the worst ever happens, right. And the other point I'm going to come on to is planning. They are the ones that need to react you know, they are ingrained in the business. They know the impact. They know who they need to inform, et cetera, et cetera. And then I think the other thing is is really good planning. You know, people need to plan for the worst. We, we always have the old adage, you know, plan for the worst, hope for the best. I, I'm an IT guy. I, I was fixing problems in 1994, 1995 for people's Netscape Navigator. I only know issues. That's what I try to fix. So I, I've always had to plan you know, but hope for the best. And I think people need to do this with cyber. You, you have to plan. You've got to be prepared. Um, and I think that's an area that we could prove on. You know, we always talk about technology products. You know, I've just been talking about reputation monitoring. We've always had security operations tools. We've always had antivirus, anti-malware, behavioral analysis. 
I don't think we talk enough about incident response planning and, and things like that. I think that's an area that could be improved um, across the sector. And I think that is key because very often, and I think you've given a few examples of this already, that they are the breaches often come from uh, simple things not being done. But it seems to be often a case of you don't know what you don't know and people aren't doing it out of negligence. It's just if you don't know to uh, do a, a small uh, security tag or whatever it might be, then all of a sudden you've left yourself exposed. And the, the last thing I wanted to bring up was around this point about education. And I know RFA and AIMA's aims have been aligned for, for some years now in, in trying to help the industry generally get to, to where it needs to be. And uh, I know you also contributed to our guide sound practices for cybersecurity, uh, which came out this year and was an update on a, a, a prior edition. And we set out pages and pages of best practices and examples, and we go into all those uh, the types of uh, cyber threats that are out there, and, and it's a really, really valuable resource. So I just thought we would close by just maybe if you could give us your top tips for cyber resilience and i know you've mentioned some quite complex things but maybe just a uh, top five things that a listener might walk out of this and you know maybe go to their team and and just check that those things were being done i think it, it, i think right now vendor due diligence it's something that all the managers can do um you know there's a certain set of questions you can ask evidence you can ask I want people to go away thinking who's connected to my business that if they have a breach, I'm impacted. I think that's the first thing people need to do is just really good due diligence on their vendors, make sure that they're secure. Um, literally, there was an article yesterday, uh, someone's systems were hacked. Um, um, a fund admin, I think, it's impacted some personal data and stuff. And 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 the managers came to us and were like, what's the impact on our systems? And I'm like, it's not your systems, it's someone else's, but it's still your data. So due diligence is really important, I think, more than anything right now. And then I think awareness. Just make sure your staff are doing awareness training. 99% of breaches happen because of someone clicking on something in a rush or making a mistake. Um, you let me know when that 25,000 comes in. Um, but it, it, it it's very much about that component as well. And on YouTube, there's so many free videos. You know, uh, I'm sure TK is going to go on to YouTube after this and look at what smishing is. You know, it's my explanation probably wasn't good enough. But it, it, there's so much free stuff and free content on on YouTube and stuff. Just get up, just get skilled up and, and be aware. So awareness and due diligence, I think they're the two takeaways. I could go on all day about what people can do. So I think they're the two like hot topics that I think people should think about now at the moment. So, so finally then, just looking more broadly, uh, it sounds like you know our industry, much like every other's, is on a somewhat of a journey when it comes to digitization and all the things that come with that, cybersecurity being one of the main ones. But what's next for our industry? You know, we say we've gone from this mad rush in 2020 to maybe reaching somewhat of an equilibrium now and embedding in digitization in a more permanent basis. But what's next? Where are we going? It's going to be more serverless architecture and SaaS based products. Um, you know, we're on this drive at the moment, I think, as a 
I want to say as a sector, but I think it's happening worldwide in every sector, is is data centralization and cybersecurity decentralization, if, if that's the right phrase. You know, people are more disparate. I mentioned at the beginning, it's not home working, it's satellite offices. That's how businesses have to think about it, because people are not just there because they're sick. That's actually now part of the organization. So there's going to be an evolution in terms of the decentralization of cyber you know, we we as a business, for example, focus very much on the data, the endpoint and the user rather than office locations because it's irrelevant now. We use a lot of behavioral analysis tools so that we can help our company's HR department get a bit ahead if they think someone's going to leave because we can see a change in their behavior patterns. It, it, that's the way the world's going now. It's not necessarily Big Brother because we can't see what what they're doing, but we can see the way they're using the data and how hard they're using Excel and things like that. And that's kind of evolved now into an ESG conversation because we can now monitor work-life balance in terms of usage and stuff, but I'm not going to go there. It's a different topic. Um, so there's more, more sort of decentralization of that. And then I think there's more data centralization. You know, if you think about all the different applications and products people used to have now, a firm, you know, aside from their OMS, PMS, you could literally use Office 365 for the whole suite. You can collaborate on Teams. You can use SharePoint for file access. You've got Exchange Online for email. So there's a sort of a simplification process going on around the technology stack as well for infrastructure. Um, and I think there's going to be more focus on the SaaS products rather than having a server-based setup. That's been happening for a long time. And it will be more about the security uh, and the monitoring from a cyber perspective of how people are using ETLs and APIs. So the integration between the SaaS products, how, how data is moving between them, how we're visualizing the data, data warehousing, uh, that kind of thing. And, and, and the, this focus on security will start pivoting towards that kind of tech. And then I think the last thing is, uh, and again, uh, this is a little bit cyber heavy, but I think there's going to be more products coming out around DevOps. So monitoring of, of code, uh, monitoring of configuration items, things like that. You know, we have a SaaS monitoring tool now, for example, that looks at all of the Office 365 configuration, all of Salesforce configuration, for example. And we get an alert if a new feature of configuration comes available or one goes away or someone makes a change to configuration. Because again, like I said earlier, someone configures something wrongly, that's, that's again, when a breach happens. And I think there's going to be more and more tools that come out like that. Well, I mean, I think, I think it's been clear that this is, you know, we've been talking for a while and we've only really scratched the surface of this topic and we could go on. And I, I happily would, because I do have a, a certain sense of morbid fascination with these horror stories of these breaches. And you've certainly renewed my fear that I will be the breach one day. So I'm, you know, I will uh, certainly go away and take on those those tips. And as I say, this is clearly a topic that's going to become you know increasingly important as time goes on. So no doubt we'll have you on again. But um, for now, thank you so much for your time and, and joining us on The Long Short. No, thanks for having me. It was good. The Long Short was brought to you by AIMA, the Alternative Investment Management Association, the global representative for the alternative investment industry. As always, you can get the latest episodes by subscribing to The Long Short on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Amazon Music, or by streaming episodes directly from our website, AIMA.org. Thanks for listening.